I'm Amy Shields. I'm Mark Frost. Hi, I'm Kimmy Robertson. So our Twin Peaks Unwrapped, the book, is currently out at bluerosemag.com. It is $19.99, so get your copy today as supplies are very limited and will be running out very soon. So if you haven't got your copy today, go to bluerosemag.com today. Thank you for your interest and for your enthusiasm and, and keeping Twin Peaks alive. What I want and what I need are two different things, Audrey. Rejected. That's what he said. Nobody else is going to say anything different. You want to feed him, Agent Cooper? I don't like birds. When do you think he'll start talking I'm gonna let you in on a little secret. Every day, once a day, give yourself a present. And welcome to Twin Peaks Unwrapped. I'm your host, Ben Durant, and beside me is... Brian Kazaska. Hey, hey, it's another community rewatch show we're doing. We're gonna focus on Twin Peaks episode six, and we've got a great panel, and why don't we start with Simon? Hey guys, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me on the show. So, uh, hi, I'm Simon. Um, I'm one of the writers for 25 Years Later. Um, I've been writing for those guys for uh, a few months now, and they've made me feel very welcome, and I'm very glad to be here on the show with you guys. Uh, Laura from 25 Years Later, and I'm the Assistant Editor-in-Chief. My name is Andy Bentley. I've been doing uh, artwork for the podcast for a couple years now and been on a couple episodes, uh, most famously the uh, secret biography of Dale Cooper. So this is episode six, and uh, boy, we start off right with uh, Cooper uh, right next to uh, Audrey naked in his bed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, where to begin? Um, I mean, Sherilyn Fenn in this series Twin Peaks I mean she just has to be one of the all-time knockouts I mean she's just absolutely stunning and I think especially in this scene as well it that seems to be more apparent than usual as um, a qualified hairdresser I've got to say her hair game and Cooper's is very strong I think it adds um, this kind of almost like a fairy tale quality uh, Mm. to this scene but yeah she's uh, absolutely stunning I know Discussion of secrets. That's right. Supposedly uh, Cooper has no secrets, so he says. Nah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe him. Yeah, yeah. Especially after he learned about Wyndham Earl and his Wyndham wife. Earl. Interior, Great Northern Hotel dining room. Day. Waitress Trudy sets down two plates stacked with griddle cakes and ham, two glasses of orange juice, two cups of coffee, and a small ceramic pitcher of maple syrup. Syrup? Thank you. Sugar? Just a little. Audrey, loving every shared moment. Do you eat the same thing every day? When I find something I like, I stick with it. Me too. Audrey levels a loving smile his way. Cooper never looks up from his food. That's a pretty smile, Audrey. This ham is perfect. Audrey, trying to get his attention. I'm sort of excited. Big test at school? Not that I know of. It's my first day at work. I got a job. Where? That's a secret. Audrey, a secret is a dangerous thing. Do you have any? No. Oh, but Laura did, didn't she? Laura was full of secrets. Audrey just loses it, Cooper. A sigh in her heart. 
She's never been in love before. Agent Cooper. Hmm? I'm going to help you learn all of Laura's secrets. We'll learn them together. Cooper finally looks up from his breakfast, sees the adoring expression on her face. Stick to your homework, Audrey. A high school diploma is nothing to sneeze at. Audrey sees his concern, shakes it off. She will not be dissuaded. Homework's for kids. I'm a working girl now. Syrup? Is this an uncomfortable dialogue because they she was in his bed naked, or is this, or did that never happen? I mean, were they implying that it could have happened? Yes, I'm wondering that. Like, how do you guys re- read that? Sorry, the unseen scene. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, it feels like this was instead of it because it kind of the same kind of things happen, don't they, in this scene rather than there was ever. So it seems like she never got in his bed, but then it was just a very similar scene to what we've already seen in uh, when with a whole freshly squeezed bit. So I'm glad they changed that up a bit because otherwise it would have just been more of the same. Yeah, I was going to say, I agree with Laura. It's like there's not really anything that either can say in this scene that, that hasn't already been said in a similar way in in other scenes. But I think obviously moving it to Cooper's room adds like a, a whole new kind of layer to it. and you know, this kind of tension. But, I mean, we've already seen, you know, other scenes with those two in the dining room Mm -hmm. talking. So I'm kind of glad that they moved the location of this one because I think it's better to keep their interactions more brief. I think it kind of makes their kind of uh, flirtations a bit more kind of potent. Yeah, and I would say that the beginning of this episode puts a cap uh, on the Audrey Cooper love story you know for them it's like kind of an ending uh for them not to go down that road it could have been a little bit more ambiguous yeah about what actually transpired that night right and yeah. this is the second to last uh episode of the season and you do could sometimes wonder if they they were trying to tie up some storylines right. and this was an ongoing story between the the chemistry between Cooper and Audrey. To say, I think putting her in the bedroom when she's naked underneath the blankets, it makes her a whole lot more vulnerable, and it's really pushing that <laughs> flirtatiousness. I mean, before it was just kind of schoolgirly crush, mm. but this was, oh, I'm really offering it on a plate now. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it's and, very... Uh, before, because otherwise the flirtatiousness between them just was that. It was just talking because they were in a public space, but this was really intimate yeah like you said it brought it to the end didn't it it was like this it has to be friendship and that's it now right some of that behind the scenes stuff that brad dukes unearthed about you know you know the whole thing about didn't want uh, the on-screen romance to happen because after this i think there's just her rescued in season two they barely spend any time together right right yeah it's true yeah it's very true she goes with john justice wheeler <laughs> the best the I- uh one line I liked from the unseen scene was about uh, eating the same thing every day and Cooper's saying, when I find something, I stick with it. Uh, I've heard tale that uh, David Lynch went to Bob's Big Boys for lunch for just about every day. So I think that's a little of uh, same David food too. The same coming into Cooper. The, yeah. the same thing. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, yeah, I second that. I think that line's really good. Um, it's something I'm inclined to do myself. So I kind of relate to that. The, the line that I wanted to... Um, to point out though was when he says what I want and what I need are two different oh, yeah. things, Audrey, which mm-hmm. is obviously repeated by Mr. C in the return when he's sitting in the cafe with Ray. So that's kind of almost like a bit of a callback in the return to, you yeah. know, that there's 
the good Cooper had that same kind of thought about knowing that, you know, wants and needs are two very different things. Yeah. What really led Audrey to do this? And the previous episode, she sees her father having an affair with Catherine. I wonder, and she gets, as she's crying, and I think uh, Leland is dancing and stuff, and you wonder if that she's like, she's running to Cooper. I mean, I know he ha- she has a, a crush on him, but he knows he's he's older. He's in the FBI. He is a father figure. I kind of yeah. I kind of saw that. And I mean, I know I don't know if that sounds weird, but just how I interpret his, you know, obviously right. this is not right. You need someone to look up to. Yeah, I was gonna say agree. It's kind of like the opposite of a father, a really responsible man that would never do as far as she thinks anything right. like that. So it's, she's looking for that sort of protective father that father that she didn't have the one who actually did care about her because he didn't seem to Ben didn't seem to care about her yeah so the I next- love the line as well with the um, what I want and what I need are two very, two very different things yeah seeing that in uh, the return you, I, I just makes me think more that there is no difference between Mr. C and Cooper they are just one and the same yeah right I mean one that is goes the, the bad side of Cooper and the good side of Cooper right yeah yeah, and then one of them does the right thing and the other one doesn't. Yeah, just, uh, you know, Lynch and Frost, um, you know, they're so good at those subtle kind of throwback references. But I just think the, the dialogue in this whole scene is so well written. I mean, the, the writing credit goes to Harley Payton mm. for this uh, episode. So I'm not sure if it's, you know, 100% him or, you know, whether there's, um, you know, some dialogue has come from Lynch and or Frost. But just the bit where he also says, you know, secrets are dangerous things and, she says Laura has a lot of secrets, and he says finding those out is my job. I just think that, that especially that last line, is just perfect. I mean, it, you know, it kind of almost like sums up his whole character in just a single line of dialogue. Yeah, yeah. Harley doesn't get enough credit sometimes. I think I agree. I mean, yeah. I think everybody wants to say Harley did all the bad things and he ruined Twin Peaks, but there's a lot of great things he did. He did the cherry stem, and he did the famous uh, give yourself a present, present every day. Yeah, yeah I mean, a lot of good stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, I think this this whole episode is really well written um, in terms of dialogue, and we know that he's. Uh, a really good writer because you know he's had a hand in other things like most recently the project blue book show which is also very well yeah. written as well so yeah i agree i think he uh, i think he needs some more credit yeah definitely uh, yeah i didn't say the same really that there's no filler at all in this episode there's no boring scenes like everyone and even not it's sort of turning off the main story like the catherine scenes the lucy scenes everything everything's leading up to their own personal mysteries and it's all building up. So yeah, this is probably one of the best episodes of season one, really. De Chanel, wasn't it? I think it was director. Yeah. Yeah, it was all, those two working together were clearly really good. Yeah, it's um, just following on from what Laura's saying. Yeah, Caleb De Chanel's director of this episode. He's obviously married to Mary. Uh, Joe De Chanel, who plays Eileen Hayward. And is also father to Zoe Deschanel, just a bit of trivia. But yeah, he um, directs uh, another two episodes in season two, 2.8 and 2.12. And I think he um, overall over series one and two has a, has a good uh, contribution to the, to the whole thing. The one thing I was going to say was, um, I didn't know whether you guys were going to talk about the Log Lady intro at all. This is great to talk about it because this is a rewatch and we could definitely add it. So, yeah, do you want? Do you have something to say about it? So, yeah, with the, the Log Lady intro, the, um, the main um, thing that she talks about is the idea of eyes being a window to the soul. 
And then she goes on to say about um, about solar sites and when you see them that there's uh, that you see there's nothing behind them. And the thing that stood out to me when she said that is just the, the first time that we see Bob at the foot of the bed. That was the the image that came into my head when she said that. So I thought that was quite interesting. Yeah. You know, those log lady interviews were all done in one day. I, I think, I mean, I don't even think David Lynch was actually there. I think somebody else uh, filmed uh, Catherine Coulson. Yeah, I believe um, all the intros were done. I think I read somewhere that it was when the first two seasons were shown on uh, a Bravo. channel called Bravo. I don't yeah. know whether you guys get that yep. in the US or whether that's more of like a, a European thing. We have Bravo and yep, and, uh, uh, sweeten the deal of getting the um, shows. They wanted something new. Yeah, I want to say it was 93. So it wasn't exactly. that long after. I mean, it was after Firewalk with me, but it wasn't too long after the series had ended. Bravo got all the all of Twin Peaks to re-air. I, I think a great scene to touch upon is the uh, when they're listening to Laura's tapes. And James discovers that Laura's kind of mocking James. I mean, this is like a heartbreaking scene for poor James over here. They're all listening. Like, can you imagine you pass away and someone finds your uh, diary or secret tapes and you're trash talking someone you're supposed to love and that person hears it? I mean, this is the like the worst. And, you know, you you watch, you hear the scene and you're like, like, I don't know if I feel bad for Laura anymore. Oh. <laughs> I hate to say that. I'm like, I'm only kidding. I felt bad for Laura. But I'm just saying, like, it, it, it does change the dynamic. And you know that Laura has, like, there's a lot more to her. I mean, Firewalk with me will unwrap that all. But for the show, you don't know much about her. You just know the good things. Yeah, I was just going to um, follow on from what you were saying about the tape recorder scene. What I found interesting was that um you mentioned firewalk and the in the episode she she does the she talks to the tape in this kind of you know almost like childlike voice and she's very playful with it and she says it's easier talking into the recorder i guess i feel i can say anything which i thought was kind of interesting it was almost like a you know almost like a kind of foreshadowing of like social media and things and the way that you know online people feel like they can say things that they wouldn't normally say in real life mm. but the other thing was that um, I believe it's in the missing pieces of Firewalk Me is that I think it's when Laura's getting ready to go out on the night of the 23rd and Jacoby calls her and he says something along the lines of, oh, have you recorded another tape for me? And she sounds really kind of like exasperated by him, like almost like a bit annoyed, like, oh, yeah, you know, kind of leave me alone. And I just thought it was interesting that um, obviously she's very playful in this scene. So I think it just shows that she has multiple personalities and that's, you know, she has different personas that she turns on at different times. Definitely. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it was creepy the way she's talking to Jacoby with these tapes. And, you know, you're like, what is going on here between the two? And it's obviously not that innocent. You know, like Jacoby, he, for lack of a better way of saying this, it seems like he gets off on these tapes in yeah. a way. He really enjoys them. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say that this is where you really start to see that Laura is really manipulative. And she knows how to play different people in different ways to get them to do what she wants, basically. But, uh, yeah, so she speaks to Jacoby like a child because he feels needed by her then because she's childlike. And then with James, she kind of, yeah, she, and that was really sad. I felt really bad for him, especially because two other girls... 
had to hear yeah. all the bad things she said. <laughs> oh, poor James. He's, what, is he supposed to be 17? Oh, yeah. yeah, probably 17 or 18, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's like... <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, no wonder he went off and joined a band and did his little song. Uh, yeah, just following on from that point, I was going to say, yeah, Jacoby does, he definitely gets off on it. Um, one of my favorite bits from the the pilot is when he ask, asks uh, Cooper if he can accompany him to the morgue, and he says, no, why, why would you want to? And that's, you know, obviously just showing that, you know, he, he is kind of getting off on, on like the kind of drama and that here and it's kind of a bit sick in the way, but at the same time, when he speaks to Cooper at um, Laura's grave, he does kind of admit uh, a certain, to at least to a certain point, that you know that he, he said he's a terrible person and he doesn't really care about these people. Um, but he said he did care about Laura, so I think there's a kind of complicated feelings that he's got there, where he he does kind of care for her. In a bit of a, a perverted way, but he does also get off on it, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So we have the scene with uh, Audrey at the perfume uh, counter there. Yeah. And then Audrey is is kind of being detective, and she's going to. Uh, she I, I, it makes me also think of like Blue Velvet, where she's hiding in the in the. Uh, I thought of that there. too. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted more detective Audrey. Well, you could have got it. I mean, she was gonna go. She was gonna be a part of um, a Mulholland Drive, and she would got a spin off. And no, but that didn't happen. <laughs> it almost happened. Just the whole vibe around this idea of the perfume counter is is really interesting because I think it's it's very realistic that um, they kind of choose that specific place to kind of pluck these these uh, these girls from because. You know, I can tell you that from working in salons, for example, as a hairdresser, it's they do attract a certain type of girl, and there's certain types of guys who then prey on that, and it's it can be really disturbing. But I've I've seen it in uh, I've seen it in real life where, you know, there's uh, there's certain kind of guys like you know businessmen and people with money, and they think that these these kind of girls are more game for you know for certain things, and so I just thought that was a a really kind of interesting uh, motif to use this whole idea of them kind of poaching people from the perfume counter. Uh, yeah, uh, which with, with trinkets, nonetheless. Here's a right. little trinket, Laura. It's very disturbing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. See that trinket? I really want <laughs> a unicorn. It's like one of the only things I haven't been able to find in to have as a Twin Peaks collector's item. I really want one. But oh. I, I just love Audrey in this scene. She's just great. She just knows that she can do whatever she wants. She can smoke in, yeah. a, in mm-hmm. a cupboard. And even if she gets caught, she's not going to get in trouble because she's Audrey Horn. I, yeah, it's just great. But uh, yeah, I, yeah, and she was so clever at finding the Black Roses telephone number and all that. Was, yeah, I love that scene. Yeah, I wanted more of that from her. Second season where she became business Audrey, but I kind of missed that kind of like sneaking around and and, detective Audrey. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. yeah. slick back hair like Dale. (laughs) (laughs) Interior, Great Northern Hotel, day. Binhorn sits behind his desk, grimaces. He's getting tired of Icelandic drinking songs, the cacophony in the hall. Catherine Martell sits on his desk, mutters. Why must you deal with heathens? All that singing makes my eyes ache. Business is business. Very pithy, Ben. I must make a note of it. A knock at the door. Einar Thorsen steps inside. Catherine slips off the desk, assumes a less casual pose. 
Einer wipes a little beer off his vest, gestures toward the hallway. Ben! Ben, come join us! Just as soon as I can get away from this desk, you've got to teach me one of those incredible drinking songs. Einer, I want you to meet a very important woman. Catherine Martell, Einer Thorson. Einer's heading up the delegation from Iceland. Einer engages Catherine in a hearty, enthusiastic handshake. Catherine endures it. Catherine manages the Packard Sawmill, Einer, but she'll soon be joining us at Ghostwood Estates as project manager. Excellent. Congratulations. Very good. Thank you. Extricating self from handshake with look at Ben. You'll have to teach me one of those songs too. Certainly. Everybody sings. Everybody into the vans. Can I move on, partners? No, no, no. Go on. You can take the keg with you. Ben, Catherine, have you met the future ex Mrs. Horn? Hebba Forrestotier. Under her breath to Ben. Sounds like a cheese. We met at the party last night, Jerry. Of course you did. Love and jet lag have turned my brain to rubble. Einer, buddy, what's the good word? The word is excellent. <laughs> they laugh. Ben's getting impatient. Jer, maybe you ought to be getting on with the tour of the site. I'm sure the group's dying to see the woods. Absolutely. Einer, let's hit the bricks. Heba, honey, grab the basket. I'm getting splinters. Oh, careful. Don't shake the Chardonnay. Nice to meet you, Catherine. All offer brief farewells. Exit. Jerry shuts the door behind them. I never thought I'd miss the Norwegians. Thanks for coming by, Catherine. Einer was anxious to spend some time with you. It was special for me, too. Did you talk to Josie last night? I gave her one last chance. She won't sell. She continues to think of the mill as a monument to Andrew's memory. Fine. When's the bonfire? Soon. Soon? Catherine, arson is a felony. The less you know, the better. I'm keeping you clear of all this. Catherine takes a hard look at him. She trusts no one. Business is business. That's right. Ben goes for a kiss. She offers a cheek, then turns and heads for the door. I've got to get back to the mill, spread a little kindling. It kind of always felt that there was a bit of an element missing because we didn't really hear the part of the arrangement between Ben and Catherine. We heard it between Josie and Frank and Leo and Ben and, you know, and they all kind of looped, but it, always, it did always feel like that there was a bit missing. And, you know, when she does find out that she's being double-crossed, it kind of felt a bit like, well, yeah, because you guys didn't really kind of talk about it that much. So I do feel that this, um, it would have been good if this scene or especially mm-hmm. that bit of the scene where they're talking about the arrangement that they have personally would have, uh, would have been good to see. Yeah. It is kind of a remix of, you know, the scene that you get with Ben and Jerry. I wonder if they took Catherine out because later in the episode is when Catherine gets onto Ben's cross mm. so, um, with the uh, insurance guy. So that, that was my, my theory on it, but who knows, could have been casting, could have been, you know, woman to place it. Catherine was sick, you know. Who did you play in the past, Andy? Uh, I did Cooper. Oh yeah, that and was great. Ben Horn, and then just a simple one line from Andy. And I did something that I hear improv people do is that kept uh, you know playing the voice over and over again to see if I could find mm. little mannerisms and ticks that would make it sound yeah. more like him. 
And then this episode has one of the, the one of the most memorable lines um, that every day, once a day, give yourself a present written by Harley Payton. Yes. This is a classic. I love it. Yeah. I think about it every day. I yeah. get myself a coffee. It's like, I got to treat myself. <laughs> yeah, that's what I say to myself every day, too. Yeah, I've got to give my uh, shout out to my dad on uh, on this because he watched the original series back when it aired, um, but he hasn't really watched it since um and but he did show me the um the, the first episode he had the uh he had the episode with the dream sequence taped which he showed me when i was a kid which i really appreciated mm-hmm. but i was talking when i was talking to him about it when i was getting back into it in a big way however many years ago i said well what what do you remember about the show and that line was the one thing that he said he said i remember that line and mm-hmm. i think it's it is one of the best lines in the in the show in general and I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I see it on social media all the time. It's oh, yeah. it's a very kind of a meme-tastic line. Mm-hmm. It was funny to see Nadine, again, you know, fascinated by, this time it's the soap opera, but, you know, in the, in the return, she's fascinated by Dr. Amp. Coming up, we, we're going to have uh, Cooper and his tux. Yes. James Bond Cooper. <laughs> 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 I do like that they're, they're going undercover and you got a uh, big Ed and you got, uh, yeah, it's just big Ed and, and, and Cooper there going undercover. Yeah. And, um, this, this goes back to season three where he's winning at the casino and Dale Cooper says, you know, he always wins. They play with, uh, the FBI's money, but he always <laughs> wins extra. So he oh, never loses. Yeah. yeah. He never loses. That. Absolutely, that he he's obviously got the Cooper luck, <laughs> and that's definitely played part in the whole casino thing in season three. So, yeah, um, I, I was actually going to talk about Nadine as well. Is that I don't think I'd ever noticed before that she looks at her wrists, because um, it says here in the in the script and the deleted scene that um, there are scars on her wrists, and I've never actually noticed. Uh. It. Tried to kill herself before. Quite sad. It is very sad. So she she tried suicide before. I mean, the script seems to be indicating that, right? I don't think they showed that on TV. Interior. Great Northern Hotel Bar. Night. Truman and Big Ed drink coffee at the hotel bar. Ed seems nervous. On edge. Can I ask you a question, Harry? Sure. What do you think of my suit? (laughs) That's a fine suit, Ed. I look like a high roller to you. Well... Yeah, sure. Agent Cooper says our covers were from the Tri-Cities. Gambling men with a big bankroll. How much money do you have? 23 bucks. Just then, Agent Cooper arrives at the bar. He's wearing a sleek black tuxedo. His hair shines. He looks tremendous. And it only makes Ed feel worse. Evening, Harry. Ed, all set? Ed's a little worried about his cover. Ed, do you like to gamble? Went to Reno once. Never felt too lucky. You're going to be lucky tonight. Whips out a large wad of bills. This is the money from Laura's deposit box. How much would you like to start with? 200. Here's three. Thanks. When we first see Coop in the Tux, is um, I just thought like the whole the whole gambling and, and money angle was quite interesting because it's, you know, obviously Coop's normally so by the book. And then he said that he was uh, kind of gambling with the FBI's money and he, he liked to, you know, bring a return on it. But um, what was in the deleted scene was that he, had, he actually said in the deleted scene that it was Laura's money, the drug ah. money. Yeah. 
And I thought that was kind of, I thought that made it more, that validated it more, because it's like, okay, I've, I've confiscated this money, it's drug money. And so, I don't know, in my eyes, it seems like that that kind of made it more acceptable to gamble with, whereas before, when he's just like, oh, I'm gambling with the FBI's money, I don't know I don't know what you guys think, but it felt almost like a, a little bit out of character for, for Cooper. I'm not sure what you guys think. It yeah, was yeah. a big sum for 1989 for one <laughs> FBI to just kind of gather information, you know? Both are kind of unethical. Yes. It, it, with the government's money, you're really paying for taxpayers' money. Is, is, <laughs> you have He's eight, gambling with taxpayers. Right. Yeah. But then I think that's probably why they changed it was that this was an investigation on who killed Laura Palmer and they wouldn't they – would, they seized that money because it's part of the investigation. It would be probably wrong for him to use it. That might come off as even more unethical because yeah. he's just he he's saying I will win the money back. We're not going to lose any. Yes, and he does it, so we're fine. But if but yeah, he if you were to take it. if you were to steal money from the case, then you're questioning: Would he be willing to do any steal anything from that case file? That is evidence. It's evidence. But evidence, I care. I guess. so for me, the FBI money, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> You can really spin it any way to be bad. Yeah, I think it, it kind of leads to a kind of larger thing about, I mean, I think the, f- the first time that we see um, Cooper maybe not do things 100% by the book is, is when um, he's first introduced to the Bookhouse Boys and they've, uh, they've captured Bernie, um, who was uh, muling drugs across the border. And obviously that was his first time. And, he, you know, he doesn't kind of say to the guys that maybe it's not the best thing to kind of kidnap this guy and interrogate him but <laughs> yeah and then the money is kind of like a thing on from that the point that i'm getting at is that i don't know maybe it is it is like the bookhouse boys and you know the town kind of having a bit of an influence on him like maybe he's trying to i don't know almost impress them a little bit or maybe he feels because they're such good people and he really loves the town that you know, he's willing to kind of, you know, bend the rules a little bit for yeah. them. Yeah, that's a good point. I yeah. like that. Yeah, just mm, a thought. I think I think he's trying to impress them a little bit too. Yeah, I think that's what it is. He he, he trusts Harry. The Buckhouse Boys have their own way of doing things. He doesn't step on their toes. He doesn't tell them not to do that. So this is him. Is maybe his saying, "Hey, I can be a little bad too." Uh, <laughs> right. I got a bad side. So Waldo gets shot. <laughs> Waldo by Leo. <laughs> Laura, Laura. <laughs> been waiting all night to Hurting say. Me. Hurting me. <laughs> it's just sad death. It just seems so brutal. Um, but I mean, the, the the first thing that we need to say about Waldo is I thought it was interesting that uh, again a, a little bit out of character. I'm starting to feel like there's a little bit of a pattern here with this episode with Cooper that. He does seem like really afraid of uh, of Waldo, and I don't know whether this was maybe a reference to you know the owls uh, not being what they seem, uh, possibly. But mm. um, I thought that was quite interesting. And then, of course, when he's killed, I mean, first of all, that must have been an, an amazing shot from Leo <laughs> on a <laughs> on a dark rainy night to have managed to uh, to get the the very small minor bird. So first of all, you know, I mean. You got to give credit where it's due. I mean, that's that's an amazing shot. But the blood dripping down over the donuts is is sacrilege because not only is it disgusting, but he's ruining good donuts. <laughs> Surely must be the cardinal sin. It kind of looks like jelly donuts, so it makes me think of jelly donuts, which is Cooper's favorite donut. So yeah, yeah. I think the whole lead up to the 
Waldo being like the only witness they have and they're mm. waiting and it's all kind of a bit silly that they're waiting on a bird <laughs> and the way that Lucy talks to Waldo and did you know it's all really cutesy and then when when he dies it's like really really disturbing yeah. and then when they play back the the recording of, of Waldo speaking it's like whoa I wasn't expecting that it's really really nasty because I think that's the first time as well that you really hear Laura was being horribly treated before her death yeah mm. It's yep. gone from really funny to really serious. True. <laughs> and yeah, that was brilliantly written. And yeah, like you said, the the, the jam it looked like jam on the dodo. Yeah. <laughs> it was just dripping so much blood from such a tiny bird. It's yeah. <laughs> <every what's>... <laughs> but yeah, it was great, great scene. Yeah, there's 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 uh, quite a few elements of this scene that are quite disturbing. It's not just. Uh, Waldo's assassination, um, but you know the recording of Laura, um, which is also obviously reminiscent of the other scene where we're listening to uh, to Lorna tape recorder elsewhere in the episode. It's obviously a bit of a a dark kind of mirroring of that. Um, but also we see the poker chip um, as well. Uh, obviously the one that that Laura's bitten down of, and there's traces of it in her stomach. That's also quite a disturbing motif and just the all of those elements all together in one scene. I think it's, you know, it's a very it's a very kind of harrowing but, you know, powerful scene. Interior. Great Northern Hotel Bar. Night. Cooper and Truman exit. Audrey Horn enters. Looks about. She just missed them. She picks up a house phone, dials. Has Agent Cooper returned yet? I'd like to leave another message, please. Tell him Audrey called again. Yes, it's still urgent. Audrey hands up, wonders. There's one more number to call. She dials, waits, then... May I speak to Donna, please? It's Audrey Horn. No, just tell her I called. Thanks, Dr. Hayward. Audrey hands up. She's run out of numbers. This may be something she has to handle on her own. Audrey walks down a corridor pauses. She hears familiar voices coming from her father's office. Dr. Jacoby, her mother, and Johnny letting out a chilling howl. Oh! Johnny, please! Let me handle this. Johnny? Johnny, remember our talk? Oh! Audrey reacts, wonders. She steps to a small secret doorway, opens it, and enters. Audrey moves to her people as she hears Jacoby continuing from the other side. I want you to listen to me, partner. We're partners, aren't we, pal? Aren't we? Audrey slides the cover off the people and looks inside Ben Horn's office. Dr. Jacoby, Mrs. Horn, and Johnny in mid-session. Johnny on a large sofa, quiet now, seemingly catatonic. Mrs. Horn sits beside him, holds Johnny's hand. Jacoby is perched atop Horn's desk. He speaks softly, trying hard to reach the boy. Laura's not coming back, Johnny. She's gone to some place safe and warm, where every stranger is a friend, and every friend greets you with a smile. All those smiling faces make a kind of music, Johnny. A song that starts deep inside your heart, a song you knew all your life, but can never quite remember the melody. Laura's listening to it now. She's singing for you and for me, and no one will ever hurt her again. Johnny begins to roll back and forth, lost, vacant. Jacoby turns to look at Mrs. Horn. 
He gestures toward the other side of the room. He'd like to talk uh, to her in private. Jacoby rises, steps with Mrs. Horn to the far wall. They pause at the peephole, inches away, so close that their whispering lips are all Audrey can see. Mrs. Horn, you mustn't blame yourself. Mrs. Horn turns to look at her son, Johnny now softly moaning. I've told you this before, but I've never told you the entire truth. I've been holding this inside for so long. When Johnny fell, Johnny was nine. Audrey was just a baby, crawling then. She was such an active little thing. We were standing at the top of the stairs, talking, Johnny and I. Audrey tried to stand up and pushed against Johnny's leg. He took a step back onto one of her toys and slipped, and the next thing we knew, Johnny was falling down the stairs, all the way down. He didn't just fall, Audrey pushed him. Mrs. Horn stops, wipes a tear from her eye. Jacoby takes her hand, just holds it for a while. Audrey stands and weeps in the dark, shattered beyond all measure. This is one secret she wishes she had never learned. Audrey turns away from the peephole, exits the corridor. Jacoby brings Mrs. Horn's hand upward, looks into her eyes. He wanted to be sure she's listening to every word. Sylvia, Johnny's condition is not the result of a fall or a physical injury of any kind. His faculties are intact. She looks up at him. He has simply retreated to a world of his own devising, a place to hide, a place where he feels safe. He's chosen to remain a child, demanding our care and attention. His fall had nothing to do with his current condition, and neither does Audrey. But why? I believe he made this choice in order to avoid confronting some other emotional trauma, dating from early childhood or perhaps infancy. And if we can unearth his secret, I know we can bring Johnny back again. Mrs. Horn embraces him with gratitude. Newfound hope. Johnny, who's been listening from across the room, with comprehension looks away. It's a bummer we never got it. Johnny's, you know, so unexplored in the series. Yeah. Johnny's like one of my favorite characters. You know, I've written um, a big <laughs> article about Johnny and how I feel like he's hiding. He's got something. He's witnessed something yeah. as a child. So, yeah, the, leaving this scene with so much information out, I wish they'd kept it in. <laughs> I think the worst thing is that Audrey hears all of this, that she pushed her brother down the stairs and she feels that her mother is blaming her and she misses the bit where Jacoby tells her no no this is nothing to do with that fall at all she only hears the bit where she pushes her brother so she thinks she's responsible for that which is terrible isn't it it is terrible but that was and but it's it is one of the most fascinating mysteries of Trim Beaks for me is Johnny just know what happened to him he's kind of Annie-like trapped between two worlds in a way that I know that he's obviously seen as having um, autism or being on the spectrum later on in season three and in Mark Fletcher's books. Right. But here you just don't know. That wasn't really explored back in the 90s. It wasn't talked about as much as it is now. Yeah, so I just want to know what happened to Johnny as a kid. What what is, I mean, he seems to be sort of linked to Laura. He was, he told, he only spoke for Laura. He only told Laura that he loved her. Um... And, he, and a lot of what he did, and in season three, where we see him running, dressed almost like Cooper in his bright blue pajamas, running uh-huh. to a wall and, and to a picture of the Great Northern, he seems to know so much more, and that's the only way he can communicate it. I just, yeah, I'm fascinated by Jeff. 
Yeah, me too. I, a missed opportunity to have explored that. It would have been something to be like if he had answers to what happened to Laura. That's what we, I thought. Yeah. Remember, our, I remember, we were like, do we think he yeah. saw it and he was going to somehow right. one day say, I know who killed Laura Palmer. Right, or something, give something away. It's, it's a massive thing to, to have left out, but, you know, my, maybe that was the reason it was left out was because, you know, it was, it was such a big thing and the only reason I can think that they might have left it out of is just maybe it made uh, possibly the episode um, maybe a bit too dense or something like that but mm. yeah very very strange to, to leave all of that out and not kind of come back to it because it's it's there's a lot to unpack there but um, I mean first of all early earlier in the scene before she goes into her, her kind of crawl space um, the fact that she tries to put through a call to Donna I thought was something that was a shame that was Miss because I know I've heard people flag it up before because there's obviously the the uh, the, the favourite scene of them in the in the in the bathroom at uh, at school. Yeah. Um. You know, and she's saying that you know we we can work on this together and try and figure it out, and that's just never revisited like at all. Right. Um. You know, there's never Audrey never even tries to talk to her again. Um. Uh, you know about the case. So even just that phone call that she tried to call her before she went to one night at Jack's, but you know she wasn't available. Um, I thought would have been really good to have left in. Um, and then the, the other thing was um, that there's, uh, the jo- uh, Jacoby's description of death, I thought, was was, uh, was was quite comforting, really. I thought that was really quite nice. It would have been nice to have, uh, to have left that in as well. Interior. Casino. Night. Big Ed stands at the craps table, watches the dice roll. The shooter craps out. Ed sighs. Watches another chip raked off the table. He's losing. The croupier shoves his dice his way. It's Ed's turn to throw. Just then, a beautiful bar girl sidles up next to him, draws a long lacquered fingernail down the length of his arm. Place a bet for me? She's a hooker looking for a trade. Ed musters a little courage, takes a chip from his dwindling supply, hands it to her. Sure. The bar girl checks the chip's value, doesn't bother to hide her frown. She tosses it to the croupier, as if it were a wad of used gum. I'll play the cum. Ed concentrates, prepares to throw. The bar girl presses a corner of his mustache back down. It's okay, big fella. The wife can't see you. Ed sweats visibly. She takes his hand, brings it up to her mouth. Here, for luck. The bar girl blows lightly on his fingers. Ed blushes down to his boots. He turns back to the table, invigorated, and hurls the dice toward the rear of the pit. The dice tumble and roll, come up snake eyes. Ed sighs, another loser. He looks up to see the bar girl's reaction, but there is nothing but empty space beside him. The girl is long gone. It was amusing this um, this scene that we didn't get. I thought it would have been nice to have still had that, just uh, because it was quite fun. But um, yeah, it was. I think especially after when they first meet Blackie, um, Cooper, and Ed, and Ed kind of drops the ball a little bit by saying he's a mechanic, but then he kind of <laughs> he picks it back up again. Right. But, I like I to look under your hood, yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. So I think that maybe including this as well, I, I think he, he already kind of seemed a little bit out of his comfort zone, so maybe uh, this scene as well might might have made him look a bit, you know, maybe a bit too inadequate, I'm not yeah, sure. But yeah. it, was, it was great that that scene we've 
with Blackie though when you know I it, it kind of almost gave me this feeling of uh, you know when like you're quite young and you're like kids and you know there's always one who's like a leader which is obviously Cooper and he does all the talking to you know the grown-ups so to speak and then there's always one kid who kind of messes it up by saying <laughs> the wrong thing it just kind of, I just thought that whole kind of dynamic was uh, was really really fun and I, I guess let's talk about the most disturbing scene is uh is Maddie dressing up as Laura is that disturbing well, it's mean because they're trying to play a prank on Jacoby. Well, a prank. They're trying to get him out. He has out. a heart attack. He could have died. That wasn't a prank. They were trying to get him out of his office so they could... Uh, it was a prank, uh, too. I mean, I get it. He, they, they want him out of the office, but they could have done so many other things. But to pretend Laura's back and they send him the videotape and, like... He 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 has a heart attack because of it. Now remember, Brian, you you wondered if Maddie really was Laura, didn't you? I did. Yes. With the, my original watch, I really thought that like Laura. Somehow... Laura and, uh, so Maddie really was killed, and and Laura made her look like, or like, or then somebody made her look like Laura, and Laura then pretended to be Maddie. It was, yeah. yeah, very convoluted. <laughs> oh, I'm, yeah, I was just gonna say of all the things they could have done to get Jacoby out of the house, that well, how did they even think that up? I know, obviously, Maddie looked like Laura, but to go to that extent, it was really harsh, and it just does give you a feeling of the of Don how sort of ruthless Donna was to get she really needed to get this information. It was the start of her investigations as well. Mm, right. And they were separate to Audrey. They were both doing it. <laughs> they were both doing their separate investigations. I know Donna's kind of hated for it for all the the people she gets into trouble like uh, Harold later on as well. I mean I actually I, I quite like Donna's character actually. I think she's just a kid who's trying to find out what happened to her best friend and people don't really forgive her. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, um, but yeah no it it um, yeah they do I do find the whole scene where we see Laura on tape is really creepy it's, I don't like it at all it's like she's come back from the dead yeah oh, it horrible is, it is creepy <laughs> with the scene and how we were to prove it's truly her you know a VHS tape with the today's paper I was just thinking about things today with deep fakes like that wouldn't convince anyone at all. That's so you know? true. We, yeah. it's like, we wouldn't say Photoshop, but they would have doctored it or whatever. We'd yeah. like, you know, we have things where the president is writing messages on a book or whatever it is. You know, like we can doctor <laughs> yeah. it any way we want. Yeah, that was a deep fake of back then. <laughs> I was just going to say that that moment where Maddie steps out of the shadows as Laura um, with, with Laura's theme playing, I, I think is actually one of my favorite moments um, of the series, really, I just think it's it's really powerful, and it's it seems to be kind of a almost like a culmination of this whole, like you guys were saying, like there's this feeling that Laura's Laura's life was so intriguing that you know it, it's sending all these people on a hunt to find out her secrets, you know, Cooper, Audrey, Donna, and everything, and. I don't know, just seeing her step out dressed as Laura, I just felt like it was a really good kind of um, kind of representation of that. Uh, and, yeah, I just think it's, it's a great moment. And also I think it's uh, it's funny that she's obviously wearing a blonde wig, uh, much like Cheryl Lee did uh, when she was filming Firewalk with me. Yeah. That's oh, true. Yeah. Right. Yep. Everybody talks about that wig. <laughs> I, I think the wig's fine, like <laughs> by the way, in Firewalk and Me. I know it gets a bad rep, but, you know, I'm a dresser and I think it looks fine. But uh, I just thought that was an interesting kind of, you know, uh, parallel that they're both wearing the blonde wig now. 
You know, I watched Firewalk with me, and I never knew she was wearing a wig. I mean, at times her hair looked odd, but I never knew about the wig until later on. And then I watch it, and it doesn't bother me either. I wouldn't even know it. Brought this up a long time ago. The only person I've ever ever bothered me is Billy Zane. Because you could see... The hairline pasted on his forehead. He's obsessed with this. And then I Googled Billy Zane. <laughs> so Billy Zane had lo- was losing his hair early, so he shaved his head bald. And when he did Twin Peaks, that was fake hair. But on the Blu-ray, you could see the glue line as plain as day. This doesn't bode well for the 4K release. I know. <laughs> I know. You're going to be like, you're going to see a line. Oh. Like he's a Lego man. Laura? That's why he had to wear that sweater. So that you could. Yeah, All your attention was on the, the hair. Yes. It's so bright, no one will notice the hair. That, yeah, and that was his sweater too. Yeah, I, I forgot it was his dad, his grandfather. Yeah, yeah. it was yeah. his own sweater. That's Maybe great. that was. I think Laura. I think you're onto something here. He's like, <laughs> nobody will notice the hairline. I gotta have this sweater on. Except for Brian, 25 years later. <laughs> I, I'm watching going. Billy Zane glued on his hair. Like I was really blown away by that. Anyway, so this episode ends with um, Jacoby on uh, the ground, and then at the what is it? It's Easter Park there. So they're at yeah. Easter Park, and uh, he hasn't actually confronted her yet. No. I mean, he's going to have the heart attack, we know, but yeah, it just kind of ends with that. Is it Bobby's putting drugs in the, the in gas, the gas tank. tank? Yeah. Someone's what? lurking watching them. That's and right. that's, yep. again, we just before um, when Maddie, Maddie leaves the Palmer house, we see uh, Leland looking really intense. Yeah. <laughs> he's sitting in the dark in his, in his front room, and that's, I don't think that's probably the first time we've seen him looking slightly unhinged maybe yeah uh, yes. a bit more more like the the bob version of him I think. menacing really <laughs> and then the next episode he'll be uh he'll be suffocating jacoby and those are the yeah I, I don't know why back then you didn't think like yeah he's definitely the killer he's out of control here but uh, he killed someone yeah. uh yeah it's quite amazing laura actually just said almost word for word exactly what i was going to say um is that yeah when when maddie leaves the house he's just sitting in the dark um so obviously maddie doesn't notice him and first of all the lighting is is just is spot on because he kind of turns his head out of the light to watch her leave and then kind of just turns back and just sinks back into the shadow like perfectly and that was um that reminded me of when uh in fire walk with me that when she goes and jumps on james's bike and then he appears from kind of behind the curtains you know it was kind of like a, a mirroring of of that and and then obviously you know we learn from the next episode that he obviously follows you know he ends up following maddie um but another thing i was going to say was that uh when we do see him attack Jacoby um he's got a kind of black balaclava on and I kind of realized that in one of in the uh, one of the first episodes when Bobby and Mike go to meet Leo in the woods for the first time yeah and they see a guy with a black balaclava peeking from behind a tree and they say to Leo is somebody with you and I thought well after seeing him attack Jacoby in that balaclava you can probably only assume that that was him there as well Maybe. I mean, that's, yeah. a, that's a, yeah. one of those mysteries that we never did figure out, but it would make sense that he's Yeah, and it, it's, what's also strange is that they say, is somebody with you? And the way Leo says it, he, say, he says, like, don't worry about it, as if he kind of knows. Mm. So it, it's quite, yeah, I mean, it's just it's one of those things that we'll never 
know for sure, but I think we can we can only assume that it was Leland kind of, uh, you know, stalking uh, randomers around the town. You know. Yeah, it's a small thing, but uh, do you get the? Uh, I'm going to look after the episode, but uh, the back alley here of Jacoby. Because I think we're, you know, they did all their outside sh- or their uh, location shots, um, like for the pilot. I think this is kind of rejiggered to be where Andy shoots Jacques in the next episode. Do you feel like this is the same kind of studio space that they're using? I don't know. I can't, I can't tell. No. I think so. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm looking at it, but I can't tell where they would have been. Where they, the cop cars are and oh, Jacques yeah. grabs his gun. I don't know. I thought I it looked familiar. Right. I guess you're right. It could very much be like the warehouse, like there was like a warehouse district where Jacques is arrested and you mm. know, shot. Yeah. yeah, I bet you're right. I didn't um, cite it as being that exact uh, location from the scene that Andrew's talking about, but it did look very familiar to me as well. I do get the feeling that it is definitely used in something else. and. You know, I do think that that is something that that guys do very often to kind of save money on locations and things. I mean, I, I think they will sometimes really squeeze as many scenes out of one location. It's like, you know, you, you go around the other side of a building and, you know, most of the time you can kind of get away with it. But no, it, it definitely looked pretty familiar to me as well. I think it has definitely been used in another scene. Where's Stephen Miller when we need him? He knows all about the different locations. Oh, God. I mean. He's good. <laughs> Uh, usually I would say in this episode, is there anything – actually, I, I think we may have such said it. Is there anything in this episode that would make us think that Leland could be the killer? And I guess – I think we said it. I guess we said it because, I mean, the, the, him sitting down in the living room, he seemed very menacing and disturbing. I think what back then I would have thought, oh, he's still grieving and he's grieving in the dark and he's like just looking out to see like what's going on. Did somebody just leave the right. house? But but he does it very oddly. Yeah. yeah. And – they push Leo so hard, you know, with the reveal on the tape. That's true. It makes sense to assume that he's just sitting in the dark kind of grieving because we haven't seen so much the grieving from his, his side. We see it a lot from Sarah's side. But, um, that's well, his grieving from, is dancing, right? I think that's what... <laughs> yeah. Exactly, apart from the, the dancing. But I, what I mean is we haven't seen him in like a, you know, like a solemn moment, you mm. know, kind of just kind of contemplating. That's so, true. But I do think that that also, in retrospect, I do think it is the biggest clue or one of the biggest clues in the first season Mm. um, to him having to to being, you know, not quite what he seems. And uh, I do think he is in full Bob mode at that point. And I think that is probably the first time that we see that. Yeah. So this is the episode, but I think a few of you guys have things to talk about that you guys have been up to. And uh, I guess I'd love to start with Laura. What what have you been up to related to Twin Peaks? Ooh, well, I've been to the Twin Peaks Festival, <laughs> uh, which was... Um, 10th anniversary. 10th anniversary party, yeah, that was fantastic. And we had um, Kenneth Welsh and George Griffith and David Warner were the guests. Although David Warner was only there for the... Uh, Saturday and he wasn't part of the Q&A or anything. He was just there for signings on the Saturday. And did you get to talk um, to David? Yeah. Uh, did I? Sorry? Did you get to meet him? You Did you get to talk with David? I didn't, actually. I didn't. Um, there was quite a huge queue to see him. Um, yeah. It wasn't sort of part of the ticket, so I didn't. Uh. But um, I think um, other people from 25 years later did, like Martin and, and Anthony did, so they spent quite a bit of time with him. 
Nice. And then, and I know Martin had a really long interview with Kenneth Welsh as well, so that will be coming cool. out soon. Coming up, yeah. <laughs> and George Griffith was lovely. He was, um, yeah, I, I didn't know what to expect from Ray. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but no, he was actually very, very cool, very chilled out. And uh, yeah, he, he was very open, open uh, speaking to us on an individual basis. He was a bit more, a uh, bit shy <laughs> when it came to the Q&A. He had to keep a lot of uh, information back, but I'm guessing that's because he's still under NDA and didn't want to spill too many beans. Whereas with Kenneth Welsh, he could talk about it. It was... 30 years ago and yeah his character's long gone yeah and it was really interesting very interesting cool it's interesting to hear that george griffith only ever got the part because he wrote to david lynch saying i'll be a pa i'll just make coffee it's pretty awesome (laughs) yeah but and then got a part that's the way to do it if you know david lynch's address so now we all know how to get into the next project. Right. We'll write a letter. I'll, I'll start writing right now. <laughs> we'll do anything. And he's like, you all got parts. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Simon, have you done anything lately related to, to Twin Peaks? Uh, I have. Um, I went to, uh, there was an event in Manchester, which was part of the International Manchester Festival. And it was called David Lynch at Home. Um, Home was the name of, a, of an art gallery um, in Manchester, which was a very, very cool space. And it had the uh, biggest collection of his artwork that has been gathered in one exhibition today. So that was very cool. It was in it was in different sections of kind of um, different themes throughout his his uh, his kind of life. So it was great to see all of that artwork in uh, in one place. Um, I don't know. If, for anybody who has seen his artwork, I'm sure you probably know that it's it's very kind of uh, abstract and it's it's quite crazy, really. I mean, people think that uh, you know he's he's all about film and TV, but he he does primarily class himself as a painter mm. first and foremost, and it's almost like the most raw kind of um, creativity that you, you you might see from him. So if you get a chance to see any of his artwork, I, I strongly suggest it. It's very very interesting. And then um, what also happened that was attached to this was there was two nights of music. No, sorry, there was three nights, but I went to two nights um, of music curated by Krista Bell. I went on the the first two nights. Krista performed on both nights, and the headliner on the first day on the Friday was Anna Calvi. Uh, Anna Calvi is an amazing British uh, musician. If you haven't heard of her, I strongly suggest that you check her out. Uh, she's just been nominated for the Mercury Prize and um, she did an amazing set. Um, she's also just done the, uh, the music for the latest series of Peaky Blinders, if there's any Peaky Blinders fans out there. Uh, and then on the second night, there was, uh, that was headlined by These New Puritans um, and they did a very uh, kind of David Lynch themed set uh, with a lot of covers from various uh, films and obviously songs from uh, from Twin Peaks uh, from the soundtrack and from the show and uh, yeah it was it was an amazing uh, weekend there were other events that were going on that was part of the uh, the whole festival but that was the the kind of Lynch themed ones and it was uh, it was really something uh, really something special uh, to have you know especially in in Manchester of all places. I mean, we kind of expect these things to happen in London, but it was really nice to kind of go up there and uh, and uh, be able to see all of that. 
Cool. Very nice. Yeah, that's awesome. And Andy, are you? I I know in the past you've been doing other podcasts, and have you been? Uh, what have you been up to lately? Well, it's a much smaller scale here, but uh, last time I was on, I mentioned I was uh, taking my mom through the uh, series, and we are uh, right at the tail end. We've got uh, five episodes left of the return. Wow! Oh, wow! So you're you, you're on the return now. Wow! How, yeah, we how, started doubling up every weekend. <clears throat> wow! How, what does she? I mean, what does she think of the return? It's so different from the original uh, first and second season. Yep. Uh, funny thing is, maybe three or four episodes in, she said, "Well, I thought Cooper was just going to come back." Ah! <laughs> <laughs> me, me um, too. Me too. Everybody did. And she has a similar feeling that I think a lot of us do. You know, we watch this on the weekend, and then during the week, you know, she uh, checked out the premiere of uh, American Horror Story, and she said, "Geez, going back to other ep- other shows, it's not the same." <laughs> you know, like great show but she was like you know i know that to that to that and now we're done and it's 42 minutes later you know she's really impressed by um how different it is it is it really is wow it's its own thing yeah it's it's a movie yeah that's awesome that's a great thing to do with your mom i'm also moving her quickly because you know she doesn't start forgetting a couple of you know key things there yeah you know, somewhere in between a binge and a and a weekly uh, check in. Cool. I had a article that I'm going to be sending to her when uh, we're all done uh, that I really enjoyed. So if if you wouldn't mind, I would like to plug that, and it is over at Cinematic Detective, mm-hmm. and the name of the article is "A Cry for Compassion: Twin Peaks Season 3. and the author, his name is uh, David JJR. That is his handle. So I think through all that, you ought to be able to uh, find it. Maybe, Ben, you could put a link for it. Yeah, but, um, I'll put in the show notes. Right? I'll put in the link there for, for everybody to check yeah, it out. I hope you all, everyone else reads it. Um, it's one of the most cohesive, interesting uh, looks at the third season, other than the great work at 25 Years Later, that uh, that I've read. So, That's yeah, awesome. check it out. So why don't we go around and start with Simon, then Laura, and then Andy, and just be like, uh, let us know what you're working on or how people can follow you. Uh, sure. Um, you can find me through the 25 Years uh, Later site. Uh, my full name is Simon McDermott. Um, you can find my contact details on there, and you can obviously uh, look at uh, all the articles that I've been uh, writing for the site. Um, in the rest of my day-to-day, uh, I'm a script editor uh, and a script supervisor, so I'm constantly kind of reading scripts and uh, editing those for people. If anybody has a script that they'd like me to read or that they'd want a second opinion on or just a fresh pair of eyes, I uh, really enjoy reading scripts and will uh, always be happy to do that for people. Most active on Twitter at abuda, A-B-U-D-D-A-H. Uh, no other real podcasts currently going now, taking a hiatus. And uh, I already plugged my article, and I think that's it. Nice. Cool. Thank you, Andy. Yeah. And Laura? Laura? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we hear you. Uh, plug, plug what you're doing and how people oh, can get a hold of you. Okay. okay. Oh, right. So we're doing loads of stuff. <laughs> 25 years later at the moment, I think we're about to start Watchmen, which is out. Oh, um, ooh, is it the 20th? Yes. 20th of October. So Excited for that. Yeah, yeah, we've been writing, I think Simon as well, we've been writing a few sort of lead up 
articles about the characters. So to to, give, to check out twenty five years later to find out about the the original graphic novel stuff there, and then I'm going to be doing weekly episode analysis as well. Nice, awesome! So, I can't on wait. On top of everything else. <laughs> And um, Cameron's working on Mr. Robot at the moment, and uh, nice. he's doing weekly uh, uh, episode analysis of that, which just started. And um, else? <laughs> um, we well, all all October we've been doing Halloween stuff and a new horror article every day for thirty-one days. Nice. <laughs> and uh, we because we've recently launched our gaming department as well, so. Um, currently doing lots of indie gaming and horror gaming and a series on Zelda, sort of talking about every single Zelda game. Wow. Oh, wow. Just check that yeah, out. Yeah, we yeah. love Zelda. Because nice. <laughs> uh, Link's Awakening is out. Yeah. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. So we've just, I think somebody's just reviewed that, but we've gone back to the beginning. We've literally gone through every single game and talk, in a nostalgic kind of way. And we do talk about the, the gameplay, but it's mostly sort of how it's made us feel for mm. the last... 20 odd 30 years yeah we're all just already preparing for twin peaks month in february because oh yeah, yes to think yeah. about it that far in advance i know <laughs> it's, it's, it's coming up, up quick yeah i know uh, yeah I, I think um the other thing that i wanted to talk about was that over the summer um i was lucky enough to go to uh, a club in Paris um, that was actually designed and decorated uh, by David Lynch. It's called Silencio, oh. and that is very much the, the theme. Uh, it's very similar to, to the club that's featured in Holland Drive. Uh, if anybody happens to be in Paris, I, uh, I strongly suggest that you check it out. It's a really cool club. It's about, it's about something like four or five stories underground. Um, it's like you wouldn't really be able to identify it from the outside unless you know where it is. So you kind of need to uh, kind of research a bit before you go. But it's it's one of the coolest uh, kind of club slash bar bars that I've ever been in. Um, everything down to the bathrooms, and he's got this really cool smoking area that's inside uh, that has these kind of uh, almost like these these kind of dead trees in. Um, and but it's it's very kind of gold themed, you know, a bit like uh, the first disruption in New York. He kind of uh, he likes to to use gold a lot. Um, I think infused with infused the machine with gold. I think was the tagline for the the first disruption in uh, in uh, in New York. And that was uh, it's very much that kind of theme. But but um, but yeah, there's different events going on. They do gigs and things there. Um, but yeah, if if anybody's ever in Paris, and uh, I, I really suggest checking it out. It was really something quite special. Nice, that's awesome. That's cool. Well, thank you all for being on the show. This is great. It's good talking with you, and uh, it was really really awesome. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. It's my, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you to the Unseen Players, Rob King, Aiden, Lindsay, Gisela, Peter, and Twin Peets. You guys did an amazing performance. I just love all these uh, Unseen scenes. They are really something else. All right. And if anybody has a comment, question, or a theory, give us an email at TwinPeaksUnwrapped at gmail.com. Like us on the old Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Subscribe. Give us that five-star review on iTunes. We're on Spotify. And... Google Play, and uh, we will see everybody in two weeks. Ah! Ah! Let me handle this, Mrs. Horn. Johnny, Johnny stop Johnny. it! This is Listen, time! Laura's not coming back, Johnny. Do you hear what I'm saying? Ah! You stay out of this! Stay out of this! I'm hurting you, mother! It's all right, Johnny! No, it's not all right!
I'm here with... I you never loved him. That's why he's like this. You little bitch. You think it's me? It's all your fault he's like this. What are you talking Johnny about? Johnny was fine. You pushed him down the stairs. It was Thanksgiving morning and we were getting ready to go. Johnny was nine and you came running up and you pushed him and he fell all the way down the stairs and hit his head. It's all your fault. Audrey. Sylvia, you've got to go after him. You've got to speak to your daughter. I can't. I won't. But what you said to her is just not true. Johnny's condition is not the result of a fall. His faculties are completely intact. He's chosen to be a child. Why? Kelly made this choice in order to escape some early emotional trauma. And if we can unearth his secret, maybe, just maybe, we can bring Johnny back to us again. 